We're going to be uh, looking at just one verse this morning, verse 17, as we conclude this section of the book of Hebrews. On the evening, or actually early morning hours of March 13, 1964, at 2.30 a.m., nearly home from work, 28-year-old Kitty Genovese was murdered outside her apartment building in New York City. What made this murder stand out out of the hundreds of murders that happened that year in New York City was the peculiar nature of it. As Kitty neared her apartment near Kew Gardens, she was attacked by a man with a knife. She cried out for help and lights began to turn on in the apartment buildings around her. The attacker fled the scene for about 10 minutes when he saw the lights turn on. When he saw nothing was happening, he returned and he found Kitty near the back door of her complex, hearing no sirens, seeing no people. He finished the job, stabbing her 17 times and stealing $49 out of her wallet. The police arrived about an hour later. And it was discovered that 38 neighbors saw and or heard her cry for help. But no one responded. No one even called the police until after an hour after the attack. Not one person came down to help her. The incident was so unsettling that it helped actually to prompt action. It, it prompted the beginning of what we now know as the 911 emergency system. It also prompted the Good Samaritan Law that holds people accountable for helping others. And it also began a psychological look at what is now called the bystander syndrome which states that the greater number of people who witness a person in need of emergency help, the less likely they will take action. Today in our text, the author of Hebrews shows us that we do not have a God who has bystander syndrome. A God who hears our 911 cry for help and and just stays away and aloof and observes. But we have a God who comes down who comes down and not only helps us, but actually takes the fatal stab for us. Look at how that is described in the second chapter of Hebrews in verse 17. The author there writes, Therefore, he, meaning Christ, had to be made like his brothers in every respect, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God and to make propitiation for the sins of the people. Father God, what a great 
scripture we have before us today. It's so much that we could plumb. But I ask you to guide our thoughts, guide my words, guide our hearts, soften them, help us to hear the great and mighty and powerful truths that you have for us today. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Lord, we, uh, people, we have a therefore to start our Our service today with that therefore is there for a reason it is really t- bringing it to conclusion what what the author's points were from starting in verse five last week we looked at these the hebrews that the audience at this uh, letter is written to are asking a question and the question they're asking is how do we make sense of the incarnation why did god have to become man and and by just way of quick review, last week we looked at the, it in verses 5 through 9. He had to become man, he's answering, because he came to reclaim creation. Creation fell with mankind. Roman 8, if you read there, it describes that fall, the result of it. The creation was subjected to frustration, in bondage to decay. Literally groaning, and Jesus came to reclaim that creation. In verses 10, 11, 12, and 13, the author tells us that he came to recover a family for himself. After the fall, we switched family allegiances from God to Satan. And Jesus was born to seek and save a family for himself. Thirdly, the author tells them that, the, that God became man to rout Satan. That's verses 14, 15, and 16. Satan had a club called death that he was harassing mankind with, threatening them with, creating fear, haranguing them. Like a wasp that is buzzing around your head in fear of that sting. And Jesus rendered Satan Helpless, powerless. He took that sting away. That's 1 Corinthians 15. But here, lastly, God became man in order to redeem many. To redeem many. St. Anselm, the great theologian, a thousand years ago, wrote about the salvation, about this salvation and why God became man, his, his foundational work. And he wrote this. Our salvation could not have been accomplished unless man paid what was owed God because of sin. The debt was so great, while man alone owed it, only God could pay it. So that same person must be both man and God. Thus it was necessary for God to take manhood into the unity of of his person. And that's what verse 17 begins out by saying. He therefore had to be made like his brothers in every respect. He had to be made human. God had to become man because there was a debt that could not be paid by us. Jesus had to become man because our sin debt was so great. He had to take on flesh to fulfill that high priestly role because no mere man could sufficiently make that payment. 
This is the author's point. We need the, the second person of the Godhead to become like us in every respect, become truly human in order to redeem us, in order to reconcile us to God. But then the author goes on to tell us how. How did he do this? By becoming our propitiation. See, we needed a propitiator. I don't know if you saw the movie The Last Sin Eater. It's based on a book by Francine Rivers. It is set in Appalachia in the 1800s where Welsh immigrants have settled and brought their culture along with them, along with the ancient Celtic ritual known as the Sin Eater. When someone within the community died, the Sin Eater would come and absolve the deceased person of their sin by eating a symbolic meal next to the corpse. In the story, Katie Forbes is a young girl who feels responsible for the death of her younger sister. She's riddled with guilt and longs to be forgiven. So she seeks out the sin eater so that he can perform this ancient ceremony and absolve her of this guilt and free her of her sin. As Katie lies on the ground, she is covered with a shroud and a simple meal of bread and wine is laid out next to her. Then the sin eater asks her her to confess her sin and he proceeds to eat the meal. After finishing, he stands up and he absolves Katie. Katie opens her eyes and looks around and sees that nothing is different. She looks at the sin eater and says, nothing's changed, I feel the same. The sin eater responds by sympathetically apologizing. She begs him, please, you have to tell me, how do I get rid of what I've done? To which the sin eater replies, I wish I knew. I wish I knew. Have you ever been overwhelmed by your sin? Have you ever asked Katie's question, how do I get rid of what I've done? Perhaps you're like Katie in another respect. You feel that nothing's changed. What's changed? I feel the same. If you've asked any of these questions or felt any of these feelings, then this verse has a lot to say to you today. You need to hear that Jesus came and made propitiation for your sins. Now, propitiation is a word that really has fallen out of our theological vocabulary pretty much. But it's a word that we need to hold on tightly to. It's an important word. Those long words that theologians use take time to learn what they mean because they're full, they're rich. They express so much, and propitiation does. Most translations, and maybe you have it before you, most translations communicate just part of the meaning of propitiation. The RSV 
renders it to make a sacrifice of atonement for the sins of the people. The NIV follows that, saying to make atonement for the sins of the people. The King James says to make reconciliation for the sins. The message, that paraphrase, says he came before God as high priest to get rid of people's sin. It's a good paraphrase, but only gets it part of what it means. Part of what Jesus did on our behalf was indeed to atone for our sin, to remove our guilt, to take that weight off that Katie was feeling, to pay for the penalty of sin, the the Romans 6.23 penalty of sin, the wages of sin is death. There's a penalty. He came to atone for that and to pay for that and to take away that penalty from us. He came to pay the penalty that the whole sacrificial system was pointing to. I mean, if if you're in your Old Testament, in your devotions, you'll see it all over the place. The sacrificial system was central to their religion. And that's why the author uses the image of high priest. He wants to bring that, that, that whole imagery of the high priest and the sacrificial system forward for us to think about. He wants us to understand that sin's payment is death. He wants us to think of the hundreds of thousands, if not millions, of animals that died, that were brought forward as a sin offering and their throats cut, watching the blood come out for their sin. Over and over and over again in each person's life in order to teach the lesson sin equals death. Sin equals death. You sin, something or somebody has to die. You sin, blood is shed. The debt of sin can only be paid with death. That's what the author wants to bring forward and set before us here. So when Jesus is offered, offers himself up on the cross and died, he paid the price for each one of us. He made atonement. He removed our guilt because death equals removal of sin. Death equals atonement. That's why most translations use that word. And it's not a wrong word to use. It's just an incomplete word to use. That's only half of what propitiation means. If you do a a simple synonym search, as I did, on propitiation, you get words like this, pacify, appease, placate, mollify. So in Christ's death, two things were accomplished. There was something accomplished towards us, That is, the atonement, our sin, removed. But there's also something accomplished towards God. God is pacified. God is placated. Something is satisfied that wasn't satisfied before in God. If I were to ask you right now this question, how would you answer it? 
When you say you're saved, what do you mean by that? Just ask you that question mentally right now and answer it. What do you mean by, if you've accepted Christ, you're saved? There's a bunch of biblical answers that are correct. The most popular one is, I'm saved from my sins, right? True enough. You are forgiven of your sins. You could also mean you're saved from Satan's power. That's kind of what we unpacked a little of last week. The curse of death holds no power over you. Satan's club is taken away. His stinger, he's, it's, it's extracted. You could also mean you're saved from eternal punishment. That's true too in Christ. If you are found in Christ, you will not be thrown into the lake of fire. But what is rarely said when we say you're saved and what we mean by that is that we're saved from God's holy wrath. We have by and large lost this understanding in Christ's death. Just as we've lost this word in our vocabulary. Why? Why do we, why do we change the translation I don't want to climb inside anybody's heart and of motivation. But I can say it makes us uncomfortable to think of that. It's uncomfortable to think that God is wrathful towards sin and sinners. That's uncomfortable. So uncomfortable that that. Controversy has surrounded this for hundreds of years in the church. Is God really wrathful at sin and sinners? It's two camps. So uncomfortable that we say things like in in evangelicalism today, we say things like, God hates the sin, but... Don't know if that's scripturally true. I understand the sentiment behind it. Don't know if that's scripturally true. So uncomfortable that as recently as 2013, the Presbyterian Church USA, the liberal mainline denomination of Presbyterianism, removed the hymn In Christ Alone from their hymnal. Because the two authors, Townsend and Getty, refused to change the lyric Till on that cross, as Jesus died, God's wrath, the wrath of God, was satisfied. We sing that, right? They wanted to change it to, till on the cross, as Jesus died, the love of God was magnified. Many on the committee found it very difficult to sing that line about God's wrath being satisfied, fearing that singing it would turn God into an angry deity who had to be appeased by shedding Jesus' blood and did not want to perpetuate the view that the cross is primarily about assuaging God's anger. Quote by them, Are we really to believe that the angry God, propitiated by a blameless victim, 
is the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Don't you think we should feel uncomfortable a little bit? Shouldn't we feel the weight of our sin debt a little more and the penalty that that implies? Shouldn't we live in the tension between God's love and his wrath? Isn't that a good place to be? Shouldn't we be willing to climb down a few more rungs into this theology? Shouldn't we want to climb down and, and, and think about what Christ dying did for us? Stuart Oliott, in his exp- Explaining Christ's Humanity, writes this, It, Christ's humanity, shows us that the Lord Jesus became the Son of God, that we might become the sons of God. He came to earth, that we might go to heaven. He bore our sins, that we might partake in his righteousness. He took our nature, that we might have his. And finally, he became man in order to restore to us all that we lost at the fall. Let's climb down a few rungs and just think about that for a second. What did we lose at the fall? Our ability not to sin. Scripture tells us that we are now not able not to sin. Our ease of life, right? That's part of the curse. Sweat of the brow, thorns, difficulty. Women, ease of childbirth. How about an eternally strong, healthy, vital body that doesn't get tired? That's what Isaiah is talking about. How about conflict-free relationships with each other? Oh, my goodness. But first and foremost, I want to put it to you that we lost our relationship with our Heavenly Father. We lost our position as objects of his affection. That position. And it gets worse than that. The Bible tells us that we actually became objects of wrath. It's Ephesians 2. That's the uncomfortable part, isn't it? That without Christ, we are Objects of wrath. In the discovery notes that you have for this week, there's a walk through Romans on the wrath of God. I encourage you, even if you're not in a discovery group, to do that this week. I want to just read a couple of them for you to remind us. Romans 1.18, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. The wrath of God. 2.5 says, but because of your hard and impenitent hearts, you are storing up wrath for yourselves. If you're here today and, and, and you don't describe yourself, you don't self-describe as yourself as a Christian, I'm glad you're here. It's a hard Sunday to be here, but I'm glad you're here. 
And the Bible has some really, really, really good news for you. But good news is only good as the bad news is bad. And the reason it's really, really good news is because the bad news is really, really bad news. And that bad news is that you're under God's holy, righteous, perfect, just wrath. It's not easy to say. It's not a good feeling to say that. But it's axiomatically true. It's what the Bible says. But there's really, really, really good news. That's because that bad news is so bad that the good news is so good. And it's right here in Hebrews telling us that God became human to offer us a way out from underneath that wrath. God became human, became man. What child is this? It's God. And he became man. He was born and he lived a sinless life, a perfect life. On his be- Did not sin in word, thought, or deed. He did what you and I can never do, is live that perfect life. And he died. He died on the cross to pay the price for your sin and my sin. And that price is death. He died on the cross. That's why he had to go to the cross. Someone has to pay to remove your guilty verdict produced by your sin and to propitiate or to satisfy God's perfect, holy, and righteous anger towards you. All of God's wrath towards you was poured out on him. And all that's left for you is love and acceptance. That's the gospel. That's the euangelion. That's the really, really good news. That because Christ satisfied God's anger towards you, you are no longer an object of wrath. No longer. You're a beloved son. That's the good news of Jesus Christ we sing about in Townsend and Getty's hymn, isn't it? In Christ alone, who took on flesh, fullness of God and helpless babe, this gift of love and righteousness scorned by the ones he came to save. Till on that cross, as Jesus died, the wrath of God was satisfied. For every sin on him was laid. Here in the death of Christ, I live. That's what Romans 5, 9 is saying. Over and over again in Romans, but Romans 5, 9, therefore we have been justified by his blood. How much more shall we be saved from the wrath of God? 
The good news of Jesus Christ is that he came and became our sin eater. His life for ours. His blood for ours. On November 26, 2008, a gang of terrorists stormed the Taj Mahal in India. After the carnage that left more than 200 people dead, a reporter interviewed a guest who had been at the hotel for dinner that night. The guest described how he and his friends were eating dinner when they heard the gunshots. Someone grabbed him and pulled him under the table, he said. The assassins actually came striding through that restaurant, shooting everyone in sight. But the man miraculously survived. When the interviewer asked the guest how he had lived when everyone at his table had died, he replied, I suppose because I was covered in somebody else's blood and they took me as dead. Returning to Katie's question, how do we know we've been forgiven? How do you know that your sins have been removed? How do you know that things have changed? How do you know that God is not still angry with you? I suppose because you're covered in someone else's blood. Let's pray. Father God, thank you for your word. Christ, thank you for coming and not standing away aloof at our cries for help, but taking on flesh. and even taking our fatal wound for us. In Jesus' name, amen.